0: Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory. I, I was afraid that no one was going to show because of the basketball game and the parking situation. So, yeah, I'm I'm going to blame Tom Beal from the Arizona Daily Star for this one. All right. For those of you just coming in, I'm sorry we're packed. Uh, you can try and stand near the back, but there's I can only make so much space. There are. Two seats right down here, if you would like. Two more people just came in. So, we welcome those of you watching us on the World Wide Web via iTunes U or streaming at Uh, www.as.arizona.edu. It was a cold and rainy day today in Tucson, but it's cleared up. So our telescope will be open for public viewing at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. Also, that's the white building with the white dome on top, the original Stewart Observatory. And there will be a book signing and reception for our speaker in the main lobby at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. Welcome again for those of you who have never been here before. This is the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Series, started by Professor Andrew Ellicott Douglas in September of 1922. And we'd like to say that we've been offering public lectures, except during World War II, every year, free public lectures uh, here on astronomy and related topics. Uh, As you came in, if you had a chance to grab, if there are any left, flyers, we have two more lectures. Two weeks from tonight, we're going to have another author. Uh, Dr. Stephen Strom, a rather famous infrared astronomer, has written a book on astronomy and art and we'll have a book signing for that, that's on the 30th of November. And then a week after that, December 7th, Mark Sykes, our friend from Planetary Science Institute, is gonna bring you the latest information and the latest data on Pluto and Ceres from the New Horizons and Dawn mission. So those are our last two lectures coming up 30th of November, 7th of December. If there are any students here in the audience, and I see there are, I am the person who will validate your assignment at the conclusion of the question and answer period down at this table here. So without further ado, let's get going. This is the Jeff Bennett Roadshow. Uh, Jeff has a book, let me talk about Jeffrey Bennett, okay? He got his bachelor's degree in biophysics from the University of California at San Diego. He then received his PhD in astronomy at the University of Colorado, which is in Boulder, and other than spending a couple of years at NASA headquarters, he's lived his life in Boulder. Now, he's taught classes at the University of Arizona, he also consults on the programs they have at their planetarium, the Fisk Planetarium, but he is an author, and he makes his living the good old-fashioned way, right? He writes books and sells them. and. Um, He is the lead author of the textbook I use, not only I, but all of my colleagues who teach introductory astronomy this semester use the Cosmic Perspective, which is authored by Jeff Bennett, Nick Schneider, Megan Donahue, and Mark Voigt. He also writes children's books, yesterday we had the premiere of the planetarium show, the Tucson premiere of Max Goes to the Moon, because Jeff has sent his dog Max to the moon and to Mars and to Jupiter and to the space station, and some of those books are for sale as well. Um, But what he did recently was he took very two excellent chapters in his textbook about relativity and turned them into a book to sell to the general public, which is what will be on sale tonight. and this is the 100th anniversary of Einstein's General Theory of Relativity, which was published in 1915. Um, Jeff is on a road show. He has given this talk 25 cities. All in the United States? Yes, and we're his last stop. We're, we're, the, we're the end of the road for Jeff and his, his road show. So, yeah, we're not the beta testers. So. Without further ado, I will turn the microphone over to Dr. Jeffrey Bennett, who will talk on, what is relativity? Uh,
1: Thank you very much, Um, and thanks for, it's great to see such a big crowd for my last stop, so it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment, but just to start out, so the title of the talk tonight is, what is relativity? An Intuitive Introduction to Einstein's Ideas and Why They Matter. So that's the title and subtitle of my book also. And so I'm going to spend some time tonight trying to answer for you. I'm assuming you don't know anything about relativity. I know some of you do actually know quite a bit about it, but I'm going to start with the assumption you don't and uh, try to answer that question for you. What is relativity? And one of the things that's been interesting for me this year has been that I've been getting big crowds like this, and I know nobody's ever heard of me, so you're not coming for me. Um, but, but it's pretty clear who the crowds are coming for, and I think what's, what's made this popular is that relativity is something everybody's heard of. Everybody's heard of Einstein and knows he's famous, but very few people know what relativity is at all or what makes Einstein so famous for having discovered it. So I think what I've found is that when you tell people, well, if you come for an hour, when you leave, you'll know a little bit about what relativity is and why Einstein's so famous, that seems to have been drawing people out. So what is relativity? Well, the short answer to the question I can give you very briefly. Relativity is our modern scientific understanding of space, time, and gravity. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Space, time, and gravity. That's kind of everything. So now, right away, you see why relativity is so important, what it has to do with modern science. I will spend the rest of tonight talking about that in a little bit more detail, but that's kind of the short answer. But then the other part of it is the, and why it matters, why they matter, these ideas, because I believe that relativity is something that everyone should know something about. Um, I think it's a tragedy that we don't start teaching it in third grade as part of the standard elementary school curriculum because we could. We teach kids that the world's made of atoms, we can teach them about the nature of space and time. You don't teach quantum mechanics in third grade, you save that for grad school. Um, But you can get some of the ideas across and we could be doing that with relativity also. Um, So I'll talk to you about why I think these things are so important. The reason I'm doing this this year is because it is the 100th anniversary of Einstein's publication of his General Theory of Relativity, and basically the way this got started was I had written this book, but the timing was somewhat coincidental that it came out the year before the 100th anniversary, but around this time last year, well actually several years before this, the United Nations declared this year to be the International Year of Light in honor of the 100th anniversary of relativity. You'll see, if that doesn't make sense right away, you'll see in a little while what light has to do with relativity and why they call it the International Year of Light in honor of the theory of relativity. And so about this time last year, the international group that's responsible for sort of administering all the activities for the International Year of Light sent out a blast email to scientists around the world and said, if you can do something to promote public understanding of relativity, please do it. And so I thought, well, I have a book on relativity, and I like talking to people, and I know people in various places. So I basically just sent an email to people, including Dr. Fleming here, and said, if you can bring a group in that'll listen to me, I'll come talk. And uh, so that was my list, uh, not quite complete, mostly complete, of where I've been. And you can see we're, we're here at the, at the end of the line, because the 100th anniversary is, is just about over here. Um, actually, The big moments of the 100th anniversary year happened in November of 1915. Einstein presented a series of papers um, before a scientific audience, and um, I particularly think it's cool that the, the big day was the final presentation was November the 25th, 1915 which I like that because that's my birthday. Um, (laughs) So, maybe there was some space-time connection that brought me to this. Now, in addition to this being the 100th anniversary of relativity, relativity got kind of a big public boost around this time last year for another reason, which was this movie that came out. How many of you saw it? Oh, okay, a lot of people have seen this one, Interstellar. Um, You may or may not have realized that this movie is mostly about the theory of relativity. The executive producer of the movie is a uh, Caltech physicist named Kip Thorne, who's one of the world's leading experts on relativity. And so he really worked to make sure that the stuff they did on relativity in this movie was done um, very, very well. And if you're wondering whether all the rest of the science in the movie was done very, very well or not, uh, you can go to my blog and read my (laughs) post I did about what's real, what's not real, what's speculative and so on. So if you haven't seen the movie or if you have seen the movie, Either way, you can read the post, know what's there, and it's not got any major spoilers. So you can read it before you watch the movie, and then maybe you'll understand some of the things that are going on. So there's a lot of different ways you can talk about relativity. But um, one of the things I like to do is start out with one of the ideas that most people have heard of, even though they don't always realize it's connected to relativity, which is black holes. So black holes are an important part of relativity. So I like to start out with a question to help you start thinking about some of the ideas that we're going to be talking about tonight. So the question, I'll put it up on the screen here it's just a simple question. Imagine that the sun magically collapsed and became a black hole, but retained its same mass. What would happen to Earth? And I've put it in multiple choice format, just so you could have some some choices, but uh, you don't have to vote, you don't have to vote. You can think about what you, well you can think about the answer that you would pick, and maybe you already know something about it, you can think about the answer that you think other people would pick, but what I can tell you is that most people, if you ask them this question, and when I say most people, I am including kindergartners, <laughs> will confidently tell you that if the sun magically turned into a black hole, it would suck the earth in. So I want to start out by thinking about the question of whether that's the correct answer or not. Would the earth, in fact, get sucked into this black hole? Well, I told you that Einstein's theory of relativity is a theory of gravity. But you may know that that was not the first theory of gravity we had. We already had a theory of gravity before Einstein. It was Newton's theory of gravity. And it turns out, in fact, that Newton's theory of gravity works really, really well. You know, the New Horizons spaceship that went past Pluto. Nine years, three billion miles. All they needed to get it there was Newton's theory of gravity. Newton's theory of gravity explains why the earth goes around the sun, why dropped objects fall, all kinds of things. Newton's theory of gravity works really, really well. In fact, it works so well, you might wonder, why did we need another one? (laughs) And the answer is, as well as it works, there are some circumstances in which it begins to break down. And in particular, the circumstances where it begins to break down is when the gravity becomes extremely strong, like it does if you get very close to a black hole. But guess what? Earth is 150 million kilometers, 93 million miles from the sun. That's not that close. (laughs) Out here, Newton's theory of gravity works great at explaining what's going on. So we don't even actually need Einstein's theory of gravity to answer this question. We can just say, well, what would Newton's theory tell us? And Newton's theory tells us what happens when you have a mass, a central mass, affecting objects around it. They can orbit it. And Newton's theory of gravity tells us that orbits basically can come in three shapes. They can be ellipses, like we see here, where objects go round and round. And that's what most people think of as an orbit, going round and round and round. But technically, an orbit is anything that satisfies Newton's theory of gravity. you can also have orbits where something comes in from afar and swings around and goes back out. That's what spacecraft do when they fly past a planet, like New Horizons past past Pluto, for example. And those orbits can be in the shape of parabolas or hyperbolas. So Newton's theory of gravity tells us that orbits can be ellipses, parabolas, and hyperbolas. And the important thing to notice here, in terms of the question we're dealing with, Is that sucking is not on the list. And therefore, the first takeaway point I want you to remember from tonight is that black holes don't suck. In fact, They're actually really cool and really amazing, and if you get a chance to read my book in the first chapter, I'll take you on an imaginary journey to a black hole so you can see all the effects of relativity that come into play, both on your way there and when you arrive. Um, But for tonight, since my focus is just on answering that question in a basic way, what is relativity, we're going to just skip right ahead past there. But I will say, since I know a lot of you saw Interstellar, and the rest of you will go see it now after this, um, the movie did a very nice job with this idea. Again, they had an executive producer who knew what he was talking about. And so you'll notice, and don't worry, again, not a major spoiler here. They go to this black hole at the center of another galaxy. What do they find there? Planets. What are the planets doing? Orbiting. They are not getting sucked in, right? They do it correct. The spaceship goes there, what does it do? It orbits, not sucked in. They did it correct. And In fact, the only place they make a minor error in the movie with regard to this is that when Matthew McConaughey, Cooper, right, decides to go diving into the black hole with his spaceship, one of the crewmates says something along the lines, oh, he's getting sucked into the black hole. Okay, he's not getting sucked into the black hole. So, you know, if you're a canoe enthusiast, for example, you go canoeing down the river, right, and ahead of you, you see, oh, there's a waterfall. And you go, I'm going for it, okay? Don't say the pool at the bottom sucked you down, okay? You you went for it, you dove over, okay? So it's his own fault that he's gotten to the black hole. It didn't suck him in, he aimed for it. And that's what's gonna happen. If you aim for it, you're going in. So what is relativity? You've got a little bit of an introduction to uh, where black holes come into play here. What is relativity? Well, there's a couple things that often throw people off when they first start hearing about relativity. And the first is that sometimes we talk about the special theory of relativity, and sometimes we talk about the general theory of relativity, and sometimes we talk about the theory of relativity. Why so many things? And the answer is that it's really one theory, the theory of relativity, but Einstein published it in two parts. The first part we call the special theory of relativity. That's not what Einstein called it. Um, he called it on the electrodynamics of moving bodies.
0: Um, and
1: the second part was the general theory published 10 years later, 1905 and 1915. And there's some actual interesting history to this in terms of why did he publish the theory in two parts. And there's a number of answers that um, contribute to this. One answer is it's easier that way. You know, you might be wondering, why did, why did anyone later call it special? Is it because they think it's so neat and special? No, no, this is physics jargon. Okay, special is being used in the um, context of special case. And those of you who've done any physics, or any kind of engineering, or almost anything in science, know it's always easier to do a special limited case first than to generalize it to everything, right? So it was easier to do the special case first. What was the special case? The special case is that, Special relativity does not deal with gravity at all. Now, there's other reasons why, why it happened this way that have to do with what we were working on in physics, what people were working on in physics at that time. And it turns out that there were some known problems in our understanding of physics. And I'm not going to go into much detail on this, but for those of you who have a little familiarity with physics, the problems had to do with the laws of electricity and magnetism that had actually been discovered about 40 years before this. And there were just some things in the laws of electricity and magnetism that even though the laws were clearly working, you know, you could build radios and stuff with them, There were some things in there that didn't seem to quite be adding up correctly. So there were a number of physicists who were working on this problem. And Einstein was the one who solved it. The special theory of relativity solved it. That's why the title of his paper was on the electrodynamics of moving bodies, because he was dealing with these problems that were known in electricity and magnetism. Other people were working on the same ideas at the same time, and if you read, there's a lot of different historical opinions about this epoch, but in general, what I've found from most of the historians that I've looked at, the the consensus seems to be that if Einstein had not published his special theory of relativity when he did in June of 1905, there were several other people who were so close that someone probably would have gotten it within a few months after Einstein did. Um, This was something that was ready to happen. But general relativity is a completely different story. Uh, most of the historians of science will tell you that if Einstein had not done general theory and ni- general relativity in 1915, it might have been decades before anyone else got to this. So something different happened there. And to understand what happened different, you have to understand a little bit about why, even though Einstein was approaching the same problems in physics in 1905 as other people, he was approaching him with a slightly different perspective. Because he said that when he was a teenager, he used to wonder, what would the world look like if you could observe it while riding on a beam of light? And when he thought about that question, and he thought deeply about it as a teenager, he started to encounter these really strange paradoxes, things about the nature of reality that just didn't seem to make sense if you were riding on a beam of light and he was trying to understand how to make sense of reality that didn't seem to make sense when you asked that question. And when he came up with the special theory of relativity, sorry, I jumped ahead there. Um, When he came up with the special theory of relativity in 1905, um, he resolved most of those paradoxes. Most of the things that that had been bothering him as a teenager were taken care of, but not all of them. And he realized that if he wanted to solve the rest of those paradoxes he was encountering, he had to keep going. He needed to bring gravity in. And so the rest of the physics community more or less said, hey, Einstein just solved the problems we've been working on for 40 years. We're done. But Einstein, he kept going because for him, he was coming at it from this philosophical nature of reality perspective and he knew he wasn't done yet. Um, So that's a brief introduction to the two parts. Now the other question, what is relativity? Well, we're talking about the theory of relativity. So count, theory of relativity, three words. Most people know what of means. But the other two words give people a lot of trouble. What do we mean by theory? So in science, when we say theory, we mean something very different from what you might be used to in your everyday life. In your everyday life, theory might mean kind of a guess. But in science, we're talking about something that has been, explains a wide variety of facts in terms of a few simple principles, and it's been tested and confirmed over and over and over again. In fact, and even scientists, admittedly, don't use the word correctly all the time. But when we do, when we say something is a true scientific theory, we're talking about something that has been so well tested that there's really no possible way it could ever be shown to be wrong. Because it passed all those tests. You can't suddenly make those tests not have been passed. What you can do is show that it wasn't the entire story. So again, Newton's theory of gravity gives us a perfect example of this. Einstein's theory of gravity supplants Newton's theory of gravity. But Newton's theory of gravity is still correct in all the places where we've already tested that it works. It's just that what Einstein showed was that Newton's theory of gravity wasn't the entire story of gravity. It's part of it, but not the whole story. It works in most situations, but not all. So it's not wrong, it's just incomplete. In the same way, today, We have good reason to think, even though there's no actual evidence yet, but we have good reason to think that Einstein's theory of gravity is not the last word on gravity either. So someday, hopefully, we'll have another theory of gravity that will be broader than Einstein's. But Einstein's will still be correct, it will just not have been the entire story. But it's the story as we know it today. That's what we mean by theory. What do we mean by relativity? Well, that part's a little bit um, trickier to explain, but it's basically, When, uh, so you've all heard this, right? Einstein said that everything is relative. You've heard this. It's not true, but you've heard it. Einstein did not say that everything is relative. He said that one thing is relative. The one thing is motion. Now, we'll see that from that, you get some relativity of time and space, but the key is that motion is relative. What do we mean by motion being relative? Well, you know, for example, when I walk along here, I could say, oh, no, I'm not walking along here. I'm staying still. I'm moving my feet because the floor is going by underneath me, okay? Now that's one way to talk about relativity of motion, but, you know, sometimes that's hard to get your head around. So I want to give you a different example that I hope will show you why relativity Real, why motion really is relative. So I want you to imagine this. Imagine that you decide to visit Nairobi, Kenya. And then you decide you want to fly from Nairobi to Quito in Ecuador. And so you get in an airplane and you fly from Nairobi to Quito and you fly at a speed of 1,670 kilometers per hour. Like that, right? Nairobi to Quito, 1,670 kilometers kilometers per hour, and then I say to you, how fast were you going? And you say, well, that's a dumb question you just told us. But you notice, I didn't pick that speed by accident. That also happens to be Earth's equatorial rotation speed, but Earth goes in the opposite direction. So imagine, when you look at this picture on the screen, it's kind of like you're on the moon looking at the real Earth, right? So imagine that you're looking at this trip from the moon. What will you see? You will see the airplane lift off the ground in Nairobi and just sit there while the Earth turns underneath it. And when the Earth, when Quito arrives, the airplane will set down. Got it? So which is correct? Did the plane travel 1,670 kilometers per hour across the face of the Earth? or did it just sit there while the Earth rotated underneath it? And the answer is, they're both correct. They're both equally correct. And neither one of them is correct unless you specify what you're measuring relative to. Relative to the face of the Earth, the first answer. Relative to someone on the Moon, the second answer. You cannot say that one is more correct than the other. They're equally correct. So Einstein told us that relativity Uh, excuse me, that motion is always relative. Now, actually, that wasn't such a new idea. It had generally been assumed because it comes into play because you have to go, well, what is the theory of relativity about? And this is a place where it gets a little confusing because the theory of relativity, if you read Einstein's original paper from 1905, never really mentions relativity in there. What it mentions is it lists two things, one and two, that are absolute. In fact, I think there'd be a lot less public confusion about this theory if we called it the theory of the two absolutes, which would be more accurate. Because the heart of relativity is these two absolutes, and these are the things you need to understand to understand relativity. The first absolute is that the laws of nature are the same for everyone. So, if we conduct some experiments and figure out the laws of nature here in this room, and somebody else goes to the moon and does them, and somebody in another star system does them, somebody can even do them on an airplane, and if you factor in what the turbulence might be doing, uh, we'll all come out with the same answers. The laws of nature are the same, no matter how you look at it. Now, this is the first of the two absolutes that Einstein wrote down in that paper, but actually, it wasn't a new idea. It had been generally assumed since the time of Galileo, and in fact, it was so well you know, assumed to be the case, you might wonder, why did he even have to write it down? And the answer is, because remember I told you about that little problem with the laws of electricity and magnetism? Well, if you go a little deeper, the problem was that those laws seemed to change if somebody was moving relative to someone else. Einstein didn't like that. The laws shouldn't change. They should be the same for everyone. So he said, they're going to be the same for everyone. That was his first absolute. Other than that little caveat that he was worth dealing with that problem, there's nothing surprising about this um, really shouldn't bother you at all. second one's going to bother you. The speed of light is the same for everyone. That's the one that's new. That's the one that's really different. That's the one that's going to become the basis of everything in relativity. What's Why is it that this is so strange? Well, so imagine I'm in an airplane, um, and I'm traveling by you at 500 miles per hour. And I have a ball in my hand. And as I'm going by you at 500 miles per hour, I take the ball, and I toss it to a friend a few rows ahead of me, and let's just say I toss it at 10 miles per hour. If you're on the ground, what will you see the ball doing? Well, before I even let go of it, it's going 500 miles an hour because it's in the plane with me, right? And then when I throw it at 10, you're going to see it going that extra 10, so you're going to say it's going 510 miles per hour. That's really easy, and it's correct. But now imagine I have a flashlight in my hand, and I'm going by you at 500 miles an hour in the airplane. I turn on the flashlight, and the light beam goes to my friend a few rows ahead of me. Well, according to me, of course, the flashlight beam, I, I shot it out. It's going. The speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second. But what would you say on the ground? Well by the same logic that we just used for the ball, you would think that from your perspective the light would go the 300,000 kilometers per second plus the 500 miles per hour of the airplane. But Einstein said, nope, nope, nope. You're going to measure the exact same speed of light that I do. Everyone measures the same speed of light always in a vacuum in space. That is a really weird idea. It's so weird that you might think, well, why would Einstein say such a thing? And the answer is he realized that this was the solution to all the paradoxes he had been encountering. That riding on the light beam thing, the way he could solve all the strange things that didn't seem to make sense was by making this be real. If this was real, the universe made sense. If this was not real, the universe did not make sense, basically is what Einstein concluded there. Um, But why should we believe him? He's a smart guy, but in science, you know, you've got to do more than just be smart. You've got to prove it. And the reason we believe him is because this is an experimentally verified fact. The first experimental evidence proving that the speed of light really is the same for everyone had actually been discovered almost 20 years before Einstein published his theory. For those of you who know about these things, it was called the Michelson-Morley experiment in which basically they proved that motion didn't affect the speed of light. They didn't believe their own result so, they came up with mathematical tricks to explain how nature was tricking them. Turns out those mathematical tricks required that nature had to trick them about the way time really worked and about the way space really worked. But Basically, Einstein said, huh, maybe nature's not tricking you. Maybe that's the way it really works. Kinda, that's kind of Einstein's way of thinking, kind of cut to the chase be simple with stuff. Um, It's been tested over and over since that. Lots of tests to show that the speed of light is, in fact, always the same for everyone. But my favorite test of this is one you don't even have to do as an experiment. You look at all the beautiful astronomical pictures that you've seen, for example, from the Hubble Space Telescope or any other telescope. And what do you see? You see all these distant stars and galaxies in this picture. What do you know about them? Well, every one of those stars, every one of those galaxies is moving relative to us at some speed. In the case of the galaxies, some of them at great distances are moving away from us at speeds close to the speed of light because of the expansion of the universe. So they're moving at enormous speeds. And yet, every single beam of light coming into that telescope is coming at exactly the same speed. If it wasn't, the pictures wouldn't look the way they did. So there you have it. The speed of light really is always the same for everyone, and it turns out if you take that one idea and start thinking about its implications, you can figure out everything in special relativity, at least, and a lot of general relativity also. And so if you do these things, Einstein called them thought experiments, you can figure out from this idea how all the strange things you've heard about follow. If you get a chance to read my book, I will lead you through every single one of those thought experiments with no math at all, okay? Here tonight, because we have limited time, I'm only going to do one thought experiment with you. So, I decided to pick the one that's everybody's least favorite, (laughs) which is this one. You've seen it on t-shirts, 300,000 kilometers per second. It's not just a good idea, it's the law. Why is this everyone's least favorite consequence of relativity? Because we're human beings. And we don't like it when people tell us what we can and cannot do. So if I say to you, you cannot go faster than the speed of light, your natural instinct is to go, oh yeah, watch me. (laughs) Now admittedly, it's going to be difficult. The speed of light is quite fast. A light beam could go around the Earth eight times in one second. The New Horizons spacecraft that flew past Pluto this summer is actually, it's the fastest thing, if you mean, you know, something that you could hold in your hands or bigger, it's the fastest thing humans have ever built. 50,000 kilometers per hour going past Pluto. That's twenty-thousandth of the speed of light. Okay, we don't get close to the speed of light. But what if someday in the future you could? Why, you know, why, what if you don't want to obey that law? You want to break it, okay? So I'm going to break it for you tonight. I'm going to try anyway. So this is in the future, and I have built a really amazing spacecraft, and I'm not going to listen to anybody tell me what the law is. I'm just going to go as fast as I want with my amazing spaceship, okay? So I get in my spaceship, I turn it on, and oh, I am going incredibly fast. You can hardly believe, well, you can't believe how fast I'm going. I can't even hardly believe how fast I'm going. Then I put it in the second gear, okay? Now, oh, it's just amazing. How fast am I going? I've put no limits on my speed. So how fast am I going? Well, um, we don't know yet. We don't know if I'm going less than, equal to, or greater than the speed of light. We just know I'm going incredibly fast. Now, what that means is I'm up there somewhere around the speed of light, hopefully greater. I better not be down here on Earth. Because remember, life could go around the Earth eight times in one second, so in a nanosecond I'd crash into a wall. Okay? I better be out in space if I'm going to have this spaceship. Don't test it on Earth. What do we know about space? Well, it's dark. I'm going really fast. I'm afraid of hitting stuff. So I better have headlights on my spaceship so that I can see where I'm going. Okay, That's good. So. I got my headlights. They're great. Why? Because from my perspective, my headlights go out in front of me at the speed of light because everybody always measures the same speed of light. They go to the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second out ahead of me. That's great. I can see where I'm going. You're watching me. I'm going incredibly fast, right? How fast are my headlight beams going? They're going 300,000 kilometers per second, the speed of light. So you, you're going to measure the same speed of light. And what else do you notice about my headlight beams? They're beating me, right? They're they're headlights. They're ahead of me. So my headlights are going, according to you, 300,000 kilometers per second. They're ahead of me. Therefore, I'm going less than 300,000 kilometers per second. That's it. Ironclad logic. You cannot go faster than the speed of light, no matter what you ever do. Because anyone watching you will always see your lights going the speed of light. And since your lights are always beating you, you're going less. There's no way around this, even though I know many of you are trying to find ways. But there's not. And if you want a quick proof that you can't find any logical holes in this, just recognize that not even science fiction writers try to do this. Okay? They, they'll invent all kinds of strange ways of getting around this law, but they never break the law. Instead, they'll have the universe uh, bend around with warp drive, right, or go through a wormhole, a tunnel outside the ordinary universe, or as the new movie that will be coming out in a week or two, uh, does pop into hyperspace, right? What's hyperspace? You've left the universe. If you left the universe, the laws of the universe don't apply to you anymore. You can do whatever you want, and then you come back in when you're ready to, right? So not even science fiction writers will try to claim that you can go faster than the speed of light. Now, that's the only thought experiment I told you I have time for tonight. but. I want to briefly go over, what does this lead to? It leads to a bunch of other really amazing results that you'll get from the other thought experiments that, I, that you can read in the book, but I don't have time to go through. So here, imagine, for example, you take a trip from Earth to a star that's 25 light years away. And imagine that you could make this entire trip at a constant speed of 99% of the speed of light. Now, I should warn you, don't try this. If you accelerate from zero to 99% of the speed of light in a very short time, you will be killed (laughs) by the forces involved. Um, But let's just ignore that and imagine you could do it. What would happen? Well, let's say you leave now, okay? Well, according to people on Earth, What would happen? Well, we here on Earth, we see you go off to a star that's 25 light years away. What does that mean? It means the light takes 25 years to get there at the speed of light. You're going a little less than the speed of light, 99% the speed of light. Therefore, it's going to take you slightly more than 25 years to get there. Same thing on the way home. So you will be gone for 50 and a half years. So you will be back in the spring of 2066. But what will you see in your spaceship? You get in your spaceship. Up to 99 percent the speed of light, and the first thing you'll go is, "Oh, that's weird! I thought the star was 25 light years away, but when I re-measure it, it's only three and a half light years." And since I'm going 99 percent the speed of light, it's only going to take me a little more than three and a half years to get there. Same on the way home. So you'll be gone for seven years. This is real. You'll Need seven years worth of meals, you'll have seven years worth of heartbeats. If you leave this year and you're 30 today, you'll be 37 when you get back. But it will be the year 2066. Fifty years will have gone by on Earth while only seven went by for you. This is not an illusion. This is reality. And what it's telling us, what it's showing us an example of is this idea that space and time become intertwined in relativity is what we call four-dimensional space-time. And this is a very, very important idea. And one other brief thing that, again, I'm afraid I don't have enough time to explain the details behind it here tonight, but I want you to remember it because it's going to be important when we come back to it later. What relativity has shown us is that depending on how you're moving, different people will measure space, distances, differently. Different people will measure time differently. But if you combine them together in four-dimensional space-time, there's only one reality. Everybody agrees on the space-time reality. So space and time independently are relative, but space-time is not. All right, that all sounds nice. What makes us think it's true? Again, relativity is accepted because it has been so well tested a lot of different ways it's been tested. For example, things like that difference in time that we just talked about. Well, we can't make people go close to the speed of light to see what would happen to their time. That technology doesn't exist. But we can make subatomic particles go at speeds close to the speed of light. For example, in particle accelerators like the Large Hadron Collider. And what you find is that, for example, there's certain particles that will tend to decay. They fall apart in a certain characteristic amount of time. If you make them in the particle accelerator when they're going at really high speeds, they stick around longer than they do if you make them when they're at rest. Why? Because time is running slow for them when they're moving at high speeds. And if you measure how much longer and you calculate what relativity tells you the amount longer should be, it matches to as much precision as anybody's ever been able to measure it, 15 decimal places. It works. It works perfectly. You can also use these particle accelerators to prove, for example, that you can't go faster than the speed of light because, you know, we've had particle accelerators for, oh, I think the first ones were built in like the 1930s or something like that, and they were little things. And they got little particles, electrons, going up to 99% the speed of light. Today's particle accelerators are hundreds of thousands of times, maybe millions of times, I don't know the exact number, more powerful, more energy being dumped into them. And for a million times more energy, you'd think you'd get the particle going a million times faster. But you don't. You get from 99% to 99.99. You put in a bunch more, 99.999. You just never get there. Why? Because you can't. E equals mc squared, the most famous equation in science. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. That equation is actually part of the theory of relativity. In a mathematical sense, the Rest of the theory is embedded in that and vice versa. So that if E equals mc squared is correct, so is all the other stuff in special relativity and vice versa. And E equals mc squared, we know it's correct. It explains how the sun shines. It explains how nuclear power works. It explains how nuclear bombs work. And if you want to go a level deeper than that, remember I told you that Einstein was solving those problems with the laws of electricity and magnetism because it turns out in retrospect, even though nobody had noticed it when the laws were first discovered, after Einstein figured this out, we realized that the theory of relativity, mathematically, is actually already embedded in the laws of electricity and magnetism that Maxwell had discovered in the 1860s. And therefore, if those laws work, then relativity is correct. And guess what? They explain why there's lights on the screen right now, and why your cell phones work, and your radios, and your computers. So all of these things are just further and further evidence that relativity is correct. And so given all that, you know, given that we have so much evidence that this is correct, that it gives us this new insight into the nature of space and time, why is it that people are so resistant to it? Why don't we start teaching it in elementary school? And, and the answer, I think, is that that uh, it bothers a lot of people, right? And why does it bother a lot of people? Well, you tell them that different people are going to measure space and time differently and people go, well, wait a minute, that violates my common sense, okay? Good news, good news, good. It doesn't violate your common sense. Bad news. The reason it doesn't violate your common sense is because when it comes to this, you don't have any common sense. <laughs> now. That's not really meant to be an insult. It's just a statement of fact. What is common sense? Common sense is sense that you have based on your common everyday experiences, right? And guess what? You never traveled close to the speed of light where these things become noticeable. The problem is not that you, it violates any common sense. You don't have any common sense for those kinds of effects and the kind of speeds where you would notice them. The problem is that you do have common sense for your low speed life. And you would like to believe that that same common sense would work if you traveled at high speeds. But it doesn't. Deal with it. (laughs) And it's okay because you've had to deal with this kind of thing before. And so what I want to tell you is that basically what you need to do is you need to create. If you want this stuff to feel natural to you, what you need to do is create a new and different common sense for high speeds than the one that you're used to for low speeds. And if that sounds hard, well, I'm not going to pretend it's going to happen instantly. It's going to take a fair amount of time thinking about it before it'll settle in. But I do want to explain to you that you've done it before, and if you've done it before, you can do it again. And when did you do it before? Probably around first grade. So now we need a little audience participation. Everybody point up. Now everybody point down. That is common sense. (laughs) It's very, very good common sense. It explains, for example, why you shouldn't jump off tall buildings. Uh, That common sense alone and a little bit of talent could have you playing in the arena over here tonight that the other people were parking for, right? Basketball works great. Oh, over there. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. You you need better common sense than that, right? To know which direction. Um, Yeah. You can play basketball with this common sense. It's great common sense. And when did it get you into trouble? It got you into trouble probably around first grade or so when the teacher showed you one of these, a globe. And you took your common sense up, down, and you said, oh, oh, those poor people down in Australia, they're going to die. They're going to fall off. And what was the problem? The problem was you had common sense that's perfectly good in this room, up and down. You wanted to believe it should apply to the whole planet. But guess what? It doesn't deal with it. And you did. By now, you understand perfectly well that you need a different common sense for the whole planet, where up is away from the center and down is toward the center, than the one that works right here in this room. And you're fine with that, right? By, by now, it's been so long, you forgot how much it bothered you in first grade. I'm um, sorry if I brought up any bad memories here. But um, it's the same thing with relativity. You can build this new common sense if you just spend some time thinking about it. You know, and I hope you will. This one-hour talk will hopefully get you started, but you can learn more. There's lots of opportunities to learn more about it, think about it. You can read my book. You can watch other shows all kinds of stuff, and I hope you will do that. But we so far have only been talking about special relativity. And remember, gravity, the 100th anniversary, is for when Einstein brought gravity in. So I want to talk just very briefly about general relativity. I don't have time to do as much with it as we did here, and that's still only a touch of what uh, I hope you'll look at. But I want to... uh, give you a little brief introduction to what Einstein did with general relativity and gravity. And there's a lot of different ways to go about this. So those of you who know the history and about what Einstein did will know of something that he called the principle of equivalence, the equivalence principle, where gravity and acceleration are equivalent, which turned out to be the real key to his understanding of the theory when he hit upon that idea in 1907. He realized that was the key that he needed to work out. And then it took him eight more years to get all the mathematics worked out because it's kind of interesting. Special relativity, I told you was easier to do that one first. Mathematically, you can do almost everything in special relativity with eighth grade algebra. For general relativity, Einstein had, ha- had help from colleagues inventing new forms of mathematics. It was much more difficult to bring that part together, that's why it took him so long. But that key, the equivalence principle, was very important. But I want to look at it from a slightly different idea, different perspective, that's not as much historically exactly the way Einstein went about it, although he was thinking about these things, but I think helps us to understand kind of the way he thought about things. And it's to ask this question, does Newton's theory of gravity actually make sense? What do I mean by that? Well, let's take, for example, the sun and the earth. We know from Newton's theory of gravity that the gravity of the sun makes the Earth go around it, right? But think about that for a moment. Here's the sun, 150 million kilometers away, there's the Earth. Neither one of them has any eyes, ears, noses, they don't even have brains. So how do they know each other are there? How does the Earth know it's supposed to pay attention to the sun's gravity? If you think about that, you know, if you think about that and and really say, oh, what was Newton doing here? You might say something like this. That one body may act upon another at a distance through a vacuum, right? The sun and the earth acting through space. And force may be conveyed from one to the other, the force of gravity between them, is to me so great an absurdity that I believe no man who has a competent faculty in thinking could ever fall into it. Newton's theory of gravity makes absolutely no sense. It is completely absurd when you think about it. Einstein had a reputation as being a generally nice man. You might think this is kind of a harsh thing for him to have said about Newton. And you're right, he didn't say it. Newton did. This is Newton talking about his own theory of gravity. Newton himself realized it worked clearly worked, but it just didn't quite make sense. So how are we going to make sense about, of it? Well, I'm going to do another little thought experiment for you. I want you to imagine that you live a long time ago, and you believe that the Earth is flat. Now, you happen to be a wealthy patron of the sciences, and you want to explore your flat Earth, and not you personally, obviously. You've got to hire people to do this kind of work for you. So you hire a couple people, and you hey, you, you go that way. And the other one, hey, you, you go that way. And don't come back until you discover something really amazing. So off they go. Sometime later, they come on back. Oh, what'd you discover? We ran into each other. Now, if you truly believe that the Earth is flat, this would be astonishing. How could they run into each other when they went off in opposite directions? But of course, we're not surprised at all, are we? Right? We know Earth's not flat. It's curved. It's curved into this round shape, so if they go off in opposite directions, of course they're going to meet on the other side. It's perfectly natural, Okay. Let's repeat the thought experiment in a little more modern setting. You're floating weightlessly out in space somewhere. So you decide to explore your region of space. You send one probe out that direction and the other probe out that direction. What if they meet? Would you be surprised? It's kind of a hard question, actually. The answer is, you should not be surprised. Well, it depends on the situation, but sometimes you might be surprised. But in general, this is not that surprising. We don't actually do this all the time, but we could. For example, imagine that the spaceship that you're floating weightlessly in is the International Space Station. You send one probe out that way, the other probe out that way, what are they going to do? They're going to meet on the other side. Why? Because of the magical absurd force of gravity. Now obviously Einstein didn't do his thought experiment this way, but you could imagine if you were presenting this to Einstein when he was a teenager, and you presented this to him, what would he say? He would say, oh, hang on a second here. This picture is exactly the same picture you showed me a minute ago, except for you lifted the red circles off the ground. And a minute ago, you told me they met because the Earth is curved. And now you're trying to tell me it's a magical force of gravity? I mean, get real. Isn't it obvious that the reason they meet is because space is curved? Einstein said gravity is curvature of spacetime. They meet because space is curved. We don't see that because we can't visualize this, but it's what's really going on. The space station, we use these two-dimensional analogies because we can't picture four-dimensional curved space. and We can't even picture three-dimensional curved space. But you see, you're floating here in your space station, one probe this way, the other probe that way. They're going to meet on the other side. Not because there's any force or magic involved. It's the shape of the universe. Gravity determines the shape. Masses in the universe determine the shape of space-time. Gravity's no longer a mystical, absurd force acting at a distance, it's just you responding locally to the shape of your universe, just like you would on the surface of the Earth, following the contours of the Earth. That's a very strange idea. It takes, again, some getting used to. I wish I had time to go through it tonight, but right now, I want to just tell you why we think it's true. And again, it's all based on the evidence. So, for example, if space is really curved like that, you should be able to measure it by noticing that light, which we know should travel in straight lines, if it goes through a curved region of space where general relativity tells us space should be curved, it should curve the light by a certain particular amount that you can calculate, and it does. The first experimental evidence of this came in 1919, When a couple of expeditions went out to watch a solar eclipse because you can see the light from stars coming near the sun during a solar eclipse, which you can't see ordinarily because the sun's too bright. And sure enough, the stars were shifted out of place by exactly the amount that Einstein's theory predicted they would be if space really was curved. Incidentally, if you're wondering why Einstein is the most famous scientist of all time, it's because when that result came in, it became front page news around the world. And that was the moment that Einstein became famous. Nobody had ever heard of him until that, other than the scientific community. It's a good example of media, using the media to your benefit. He didn't do it deliberately, but it shows you how the the media can really make make or break things, your reputation, right? Pictures like this from the Hubble Space Telescope, where you see these big curved arcs and all kinds of things like this. Lots, there's thousands of these pictures, right? These are not real. These are, this is the bent light of a galaxy behind that cluster. It's bent because space is bent. Space is curved, so it distorts that light. Um, another prediction of general relativity is that time should run slower in different strengths of gravity. Time runs slower when gravity is stronger. So for example, time runs a little bit slower down here on the ground than it does right here. This, believe it or not, has been measured. The difference between the rate of time over about a one meter distance has been measured. And if you go higher, it's gonna be more different. Uh, Your GPS navigation devices that some of you use to get here, they're up a few thousand kilometers up. Time runs slightly differently up there than it does on the ground. Not by much, nanoseconds per day. But if you did not compute that, you would not get where you wanted to be going. The good news for you is you don't actually have to compute it yourself, but your GPS navigation device, it's doing that calculation. Without, without accounting for the relativistic corre- corrections, you, it wouldn't work. You would be lost. Um, it also tells us some of the really amazing things that happen when you get to really strong gravity, like when you get close to a black hole and time starts to run a lot slower. In fact, I should mention, we can even test this, you know, in many other ways. For example, if you had a clock on the sun, you would notice that the clock on the sun, because gravity's stronger on the sun, would run slower than the clock on Earth. And you might be thinking, too bad we don't have clocks on the sun, but guess what? We do. We do. We have clocks on the sun. They're called atoms. Because all atoms vibrate at characteristic frequencies, hydrogen atoms at certain frequencies. And what you find is, sure enough, the atoms on the sun, the time is running slower for them than it is for atoms on Earth by exactly the amount that Einstein's theory says they should be. Um, It also predicts these things called gravitational waves, which I don't have time to talk about, but they will be in the news in the next couple years, because even though we've known for a long time through indirect evidence that they almost certainly exist, uh, the first direct detections are likely to come in the next two to five years through these uh, gravitational wave observatories that are just coming online. And of course, it predicts black holes. But I promised you at the beginning that I would spend the last part of the talk talking about why all this is important. I'd love to tell you a lot more about the science itself, but I want to talk now about why it matters, why we should be teaching it in elementary school. The first reason why everyone should know something about relativity is is what I like to think of as the science reason. Like I said, it's our theory of space-time and gravity. If you want to understand anything, in astronomy, in physics, in most other branches of science, you need to know relativity. If you want to know why the sun shines, E equals mc squared, you need to know relativity. If you want to know why your GPS unit works, you need to know relativity. So relativity is very important scientifically and technologically. Underlies virtually everything in the modern world. So that's one reason why everybody, I think, should know something about it. There's a second reason why I think everyone should know something about it. It's what I like to think of as our perception of reality. We all would like to believe that we understand something about the universe that we live in, that we're going about our lives with a realistic perception of reality. So, for example, imagine that you met someone on the street and chatting around with them, you found out that their entire perception of reality was based on their deeply held belief that Earth is the center of the universe. Okay, you'd probably feel kind of sorry for them. You might not want to argue it too hard, right? But you'd probably feel kind of sorry for them because their entire perception of reality is based on a belief that for 400 years we have known to be false. The Earth is not the center of the universe. So they're basing their whole reality on a completely false, you know, well-known, Fallacy. Imagine that you met someone on the street and you found out that their entire perception of reality was based on a deeply held belief that space and time are independent and absolute. Well, that's almost everybody. But guess what? For a hundred years now, we've known it's not true. So we're all going about our lives, or most of us, with an incorrect basic perception of the universe. And I think that's another reason why, if you want to have an accurate perception of reality, you need to know something about these ideas. They're important. I'm going to keep moving up the philosophical scale here, number three. Another reason I think we should all know something about relativity is because I think it tells us something important about human potential. And I like to think of this from the standpoint of Einstein himself. You know, Einstein. He lived through what were arguably some of the worst times in human history and in many ways was directly involved in a lot of them. He lived through both World War I and World War II. Um, He left Germany because of Hitler coming to power. He was Jewish and he was alive through the time of the Holocaust. He was involved in the decision to make the atomic bomb based on his E equals MC squared. He saw all these really... horrible things in human history, and yet he always remained an incredible optimist about the future of the human race. He was a believer in universal human rights long before most people had gotten on that bandwagon. And he always thought people could do great things and would do great things. What made him so optimistic in the face of all the horrors he had seen? I think part of the answer is he, through his own work, realized the incredible potential that we have as a species to use our brain power to discover amazing things and to build great things and to do great things. That if we just put our brain power to the positive instead of to the negative, we have great potential. And that's something that I think is important for everybody to learn, uh, elementary school kids especially, that we can do great things and relativity is a great example of the great things that we can do. And the fourth and last reason I'm going to give you is the most philosophical of them. It's what I like to call your indelible mark on the universe. And I need to preface this a little bit. This goes back to what I told you to remember from before. Different people can measure space differently. Different people can measure time differently. But space-time is the same for everyone. There is one single space-time reality. You can think of it in the sense as like a space-time fabric of the universe. And so, if you think about it that way, you might say, well, what if, you know, we are only able to move through the three dimensions of space in general, and we're just carried through time by the clock, right? But if you were a four-dimensional being, you could, in principle, move through the time direction just as well as we move through the space directions. So you might ask yourself, you know, what would a four-dimensional being experience here? Well, to give you an example of this, I want you to... uh, Consider a little experiment here. Um, Y'all look like very nice people, but maybe somewhere in the crowd here, there's somebody who once a long, long time ago had a little bit of a mean streak going. We'll put you back in first grade for this, okay? So you're in first grade, kid sitting next to you is kind of annoying you, and finally, you can't take it anymore, whack. Kid screams. teacher's like, hey, what's going on? You, no idea, none <laughs> not at all. Wasn't me. Teacher doesn't know what to make of this. So it's over, you got away with it. What if there are four-dimensional beings who can move through the time part of space-time as well as the space part? Well, they're wandering through, the, through space-time here, and at any moment, and do not ask me what a moment means to a four-dimensional being who can move through time. We're going to ignore that. At any moment, they're wandering around, oh, there's you in first grade. There's that moment when, whack, you didn't get away with it, you just got caught. You just got caught by the four-dimensional being. Incidentally, in the movie Interstellar, again, don't worry, not a major spoiler, in the movie Interstellar, if you were wondering what he's doing in that bookcase at the end, this is what he's doing. He's moving around through the dimension of time as well as space. If you read, and I highly recommend it if you have not read it before, Kurt Vonnegut's novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. Um, which is actually about his experiences in World War II, put to a science fiction bent. But in that book, he talks about the four dimensional beings who are able to travel through the, four, uh, the time dimension as well. So he does a nice job of that also. But the point is, that event happened. You cannot make it go away. When your teacher told you a long time ago that you better behave because anything you do wrong is going to go on your permanent record, <laughs> it's true you have a permanent record. And so I want to close with uh, what are actually the last couple sentences of my book. Your life is a series of events, and this means that when you put them all together, you are creating your own indelible mark on the universe. Perhaps if everyone understood that, we might all be a little more careful to make sure that the mark we leave is one that we are proud of. And so I may be a little bit naive about this, but I actually think that if everybody learned relativity, we'd all be a little bit nicer to each other. <laughs> yeah. Things like happened a few days ago in Paris wouldn't happen. And this, to me, if nothing else, is a reason why everyone should learn something about relativity. So I'm going to stop there, but before um, we turn to the questions, since I have a captive audience, you can't, well, you can walk out, but I hope you won't. Um, <laughs> I want to just tell you about something that has very little to do with relativity, but that I'm very excited about. Here read what it says there. Imagine astronauts reading stories from space to children and families around the world in an exciting new program that combines literature with science education. And the reason, I'm, well, I think it's a really cool idea to have astronauts read stories from space. And what made me even more excited about it was uh, Tom mentioned that I write some children's books. And uh, five years ago, I got a call from an astronaut when he had come up with this idea, and it turned out he wanted to read my books from space, which I thought was really cool. And uh, so, here's a little quick video clip from the space Hi, station. Hi, i
0: astronaut Mike Hopkins on board the International Space Station, and it's one of my favorite times, it's story time from
1: space. Now, today's story is Max Goes to the Moon, A Science Adventure
0: with Max the Dog.
1: So my first five children's books were launched to the space station a year ago, January. The connection to relativity is that because they've been orbiting the Earth at 17,000 yeah, 17, miles per hour, um, the ink on those pages has aged a couple hundreds of a second less than it would have <laughs> if it had been on the ground. And, um, and if you go to storytimefromspace.com, the videos are free, accessible to anyone in the world. We're hoping lots of teachers will take advantage of this in the classroom, kids can watch them at home, and so on as well. Um, As you know, this is my last stop on my relativity tour here. And I've actually, it surprised me, I've had a lot of fun doing this, and I thought, well, gosh, what am I going to do next year, because just sit around my house all the time? And uh, so I decided I should do another tour for next year. So I already piloted this one up in Boulder a couple weeks ago. So for next year, I will be out on the Global Warming Demystified (laughs) Tour, thank you. And uh, it'll work the same way as this one. If somebody tells me they can get me an audience, I'll show up. So you can email me if you know how to do that, and you can see a little bit of a preview of it at globalwarmingprimer.com. Those are my books. Those are the five books that are up on the station now. This is my new one that actually was released uh, today, even though it officially doesn't publish for another month, because it'll be launched to the space station on December the 3rd. Those are my textbooks. This is the book we've been talking about tonight and my other books for the public. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much, Jeff. Because the time's running late, maybe I'll take just one or two questions. Then I want to get Jeff out to the uh, book signing. By the way, the What is Relativity book? And I believe Max Goes to the Moon and Max Goes to Mars are on sale out in the uh, lobby. If space-time can be measured, what are the units you measure it in? Well,
1: you, you can um, I mean you measure the space in spatial units and time and time units to put them together you multiply by the speed of time by the speed of light which turns it into a distance unit. So so the actual when you're doing uh, you know special relativity space-time geometry you use x y z and c t so that they all are commensurate. Yeah.
0: <laughs> could you explain
1: the relationship between energy and matter. Well, the relationship is that what, what Einstein discovered was that mass is essentially a form of energy. So it's a form of potential energy. You know, if you, if you hold this up here, it's got potential energy that you'll notice when I let go of it and it drops. Mass is a form of potential energy also that in most cases, it stays stored up in the mass, but in certain cases, you can get that released. So that's what E equals mc squared is telling you. is telling you how much energy is stored in mass? They are, but not easily. So, we turn, you're used to the idea of mass being converted into energy from nuclear bombs, the sun, and so on. We go the other way in particle accelerators. The reason they run those particles up to those super high speeds is so that when they collide, it releases enormous amount of energy, and some of that energy spontaneously converts into other massive particles, so that's how we discover new particles, is by converting the energy into mass. we
0: okay, one more question. Over here, sir. Uh, uh, thank you very much, that's a great lecture. Uh, my question is, as the speed approaches, as one approaches the speed of light, why does the biological processes slow down, thereby the age of the person also slows down along with the time?
1: So, so, this one, I, I have to, for the most part, apologize that I can't go into the detail. In the book, I explain this all to you, but the key point here is that you never think you're doing anything. Remember, motion is relative. So you will always say, hey, it's just me being my own self. I'm not going anywhere. It's everybody else going past me at high speeds. So you're always normal. It's only what you witness of other people. And so this, this part gets really weird. I hope I won't uh, scare any of you off here. So if if I'm going by you at close to the speed of light, and you look at me and you say my time's running slow, um, I'll say, no, I'm I'm standing standing still. You're the one going by me, and it's your time running slow. And guess what? We can argue about that all we want, except for since we're going by each other close to the speed of light, we're not going to be getting together to meet and check. If we do get together to meet and check, then one of us is gonna have to turn around, and that turnaround is gonna change things. This is the famous twin paradox, and it'll all agree when we get back up, and the person who did the turnaround is the one who's gonna come back
0: younger. So anyways, uh, we have a book signing in the main lobby, and I'm sure uh, Dr. Bennett will be happy to answer any other questions that you have. The telescope is open. The White Building, we have refreshments in the main lobby. We'll see you in two weeks on November 30th. I'll stamp student assignments down here.